And in chapter 10, we're going to see illustrated here the, the, the Assyrian captivity. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself as his fruit increased. And God's depicting the growth of, you know, be fruitful and multiply. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. It's like the more blessings they got, the more idolatrous they got. What are they doing? Their heart is deceitful and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. So God's going to come and kick over all of their filthy worship places. By the way, um, this is one of those altars. Uh, this is, um, I think this is at Hebron, um, but it's pretty typical of an altar. That would be about waist high on a guy, okay, if you can imagine that, or a little bit taller maybe. But it's uh, still those things on the corners are called the horns of the altar. And uh, 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 so why they have horns, it's common to most of the altars all over Canaan, no matter what the religion is, they all, often have these horns. And they're not sure if, they, if the horns are there to keep the wood, you know, if that's how you keep the wood on the, on the thing so it doesn't fall off. Like, like how when we're going to do a Weber grill out in the backyard, the grill is kind of curved upward like this. You know, do you know why it is, by the way? Why, why, our, why our charcoal grills are round or rounded? It's actually a, a, a little bit different than that. Um, in, uh, in, uh, after World War II, there were all of these... Um, tanks, like fuel tanks and things that were left over. And this guy who was manufacturing them for the army had thousands of them and he just cut off the, the central piece and stuck them together and said, you know what, come home and put some charcoal. Also, the company made charcoal. And I, I think the guy's name was Weber, actually. This is a true story. And he came and he put legs on it and it became like this instant thing. Like soldiers are coming home, grill out in your backyard and by the way, have a car. You know, and that goes that kind of a thing. So, yeah. How did we get onto that? Oh, the, 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 the altar at, at uh, okay, all right, let's go on. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. So while they're in exile, they realize we don't have a king anymore because God kicked us out. Even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements, therefore lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. Um, so lawsuits. Uh, you don't hear a lot about lawsuits before this in the Bible, but now they're, they're going to be going into exile. And where there's no love for God, there begins to be no love for anybody. And you begin to be contentious and you begin to just take people to court and you begin to disagree and... God's law provided for settling all kinds of disagreements. You know, we got boundary stones, we got rules, we got stuff. And now, no more rules, so lawsuits. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. That would be Bethel. Bethel's not very far north of Jerusalem either. And it was one of the places where this king, Jeroboam I, had set up a false calf. And the people are going to be afraid for their calf idol. Why? 
The people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor, because it was taken from them into exile. Oh no, the calf idol's been taken into exile. What did they believe about the calf idol? They believed that that God was that idol. Therefore, our God was captured and carried away. Well, um, so now they're, now they're terrified of that. It'll be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be shamed of its wooden idols. You know, so what do we have left? Just uh, some sticks of wood and things. But our, our big God is taken away, carried away. What a terrible God that can be captured by mere men. Samaria and its king will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. Luther here says, like a bubble. (laughs) What happens to a bubble that's on the water? Eventually, it pops, right? And And after it pops, you can't even tell where it was. You know, it's just it's just completely gone. In, uh, in Germany, after World War I, it was the beginning of submarine warfare. And so sh- people were used to seeing shipwrecks like near the shore where a ship would sink. But submarine warfare, they had to come up with a new word for what happened. They, ca- they, they said, Spurlos Verzenkt. Can you say that with me? Spurlos Verzenkt. It means gone without a trace. So it, there just wasn't anything left of that ship or those people. That's what was going on in that kind of warfare. And that's what uh, uh, Hosea says. Samaria and its king, Spurlos Verzenkt, they're going to be gone. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Idolatry was always the sin of the northern kingdom. Idolatry. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. You've heard that before? Where have you heard that before? Jesus, yes, he does. Jesus says this. Also, John says it in Revelation, but Jesus says it in, uh, in the book of Luke. And um, I, have the, I have the reference. It's Luke 23, 30. It's in reference to the last days when things will get terrible and things will get so bad People would rather, I, I really wish a volcano would erupt and I would die in the, in, the, in the lava. Or I really wish that this mountain would just suddenly just tip over on top of me rather than have whatever else is going to happen. So uh, uh, it's got to be pretty bad when you wish that a, that a mountain would fall on you instead of something else happening. Things have got to be pretty bad. Since the days of Gibeah, speaking of nightmares, you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? Yeah, they all died. When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them and put them in bonds for their double sin. So rebelling against me and hating one another, double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. A heifer is a young girl cow who hasn't had a baby yet, right? Her whole life should be out in the fields eating grass and and checking out the boy cows, right? But instead, what does she do? Oh, she loves to thresh. She just wants to walk around on the grain and do the old cow work, the work for the tired bull. 
That's what she wants to do. And God says, fine, I'll put a yoke on her fair neck. If that's what she wants to do, that's what she's going to do. You people of Israel, you've been using animals to do this labor. You're going to Assyria and you're going to do an animal's work. I will drive Ephraim, Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. So God even uses the names of their ancestors. You people are going to have to do this. So, and now, oh, and now Hosea does it again. The sudden flip from law to gospel, from condemnation to call to repentance. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. You might think it's so bad that you wish it would rain hot lava down on your head, but God is going to rain joy and righteousness and holiness on you because that's how much God loves us. Galatians 6, 7, a man reaps what he sows. Look for my righteousness, seek me, O people, and you will find me. I will be there. I want you back, God is saying. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, this is instead of me, the Lord says, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. You like noise? I'll give you noise, God says. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. Who was Shalman? Where is Beth Arbel? Let me read verse 15, then we'll come back to it, okay? Thus it will happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. So when this comes, the king will be destroyed. So Shalman and Beth Arbel. Beth Arbel is on this map. You see the Sea of Galilee, the blue blob? Looks like a fist, kind of. And then Beth Arbel is that red point to the right. And if this were a New Testament map, that would be in the region in the New Testament we call the Decapolis, the ten cities. Have you heard of that? That's kind of on that right-hand side of the Sea of Galilee and comes down a ways. In fact, do you remember one of the Marys has a funny last name in the New Testament? Magdalene. The city of Magdala is pretty close to Beth Arbel here. Okay, not that far away from, from Beth Arbel. Might have been closer to the lake, but still, um, uh, that's kind of where that is. So Shalman seems to be an abbreviation for a guy named Shalmaneser. And Shalmaneser V was the Assyrian king who came and destroyed Samaria and did and, and actually came. So I think what the prophet is saying is this has already started. Beth Arbel, this little town over here on the, on, the, on the right, it's already gone. So there's not much left for you to do. This, the Assyrians are on their way. This is a picture of Beth Arbel, by the way, um, it's, uh, it was, it was a, 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 a lovely little city in between the valley of these two kind of slopes here, and it's just gone. So, yeah, the, the destruction is on its way. It's already happening. 
In the last uh, chapter for tonight, which is chapter 11, we're going to see that idolatry is the chronic evil. But God begins to call his people back. And we have, I think, the most famous verse in Hosea next. You ready for this? Chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You recognize that verse? What's that from? The Christmas story. Sure, or actually the, 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 the little, little later in the Epiphany season, it's when the Holy Family has to go down to Egypt to escape from Herod the Great. Herod dies, and then they get called back up out of Egypt. And, then, and Matthew says, and hey, it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Um, so Hosea's context here is that like Israel back in the days of, of the, the, the Egyptian captivity under Moses, they came out of Egypt and they followed this pattern, kind of. You see the white line here? Is that showing up okay? Um, they came out of the, the, the splayed hand part of the Nile and out of uh, uh, that area, Memphis and so forth. They, they, they fled across the Red Sea. God opened the sea for them. They got across into the Sinai Peninsula. And instead of going just about north or a little bit, a little bit to the northeast to get to Canaan, they went south for a couple years. Um, and so if Pharaoh tried to find them in the land of Canaan, where they had come from, he couldn't find them because they disappeared into one of the most fearsome deserts in the world. Really good hiding place. No water, sure death, certain death. And the Lord kept them there for a couple years. That's a really, if you can do it, that's a really good hiding place. And he gave them water out of a rock and he threw quail at them and gave them manna. So he took care of them, but they were down there a long time. Then they went up and in the, in the, in normally it would take about a month to go up to Canaan. Or is it 11 days? Something like that. And it, instead it took them 40 years. So, um, how slowly could you walk from one wall in this room to the other wall? Pretty slow. But do you think you could make it last more than an hour? Wouldn't you go crazy and do something else after a while? You know, you could stand there and like, you know, kind of go one step, two steps, right? Three steps. But 40 years? I mean, eventually you have to get a bathroom break in, right? But no, they are, they are down there for 40 years um, letting this happen. And then Matthew says, okay, they did that, but the out of Egypt I called my son also applies to Jesus. Because just as Israel was in exile in Egypt, so also Christ was the ultimate exile called out of Egypt by God. And if Matthew hadn't told us that this is a messianic prophecy, I wouldn't have gotten it. I wouldn't have recognized this. But the Bible, therefore, gives us three places where the Savior came from. How many of you are kind of from, from more than one spot as a, as a child? I was born here, but I was raised here. I was. I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, but my family lived in Poinette, Wisconsin. So Christ was born where? Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem, and that's math, or, um, 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 Micah 5, right? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right? Then um, he leaves Bethlehem and they go to Egypt. And Hosea says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And where do they move after they come back from Egypt? Nazareth. And Galilee of the Gentiles, a, a, a people who lived in darkness has seen a great light. Isaiah says he'll be from Galilee. And he'll be called a Nazarene. We get a, a verse like that in the New Testament too. So you've got the Savior coming from three different places, literally triangulating us on who the Savior will be because he's from these three places. Um, and how many people would that apply to in the ancient world? You know, I think just Jesus alone. Showing us that all those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled only in Christ. Not just mostly in Christ, but only in Christ. I had this described to me this way once, that the chances of someone fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Savior, the way that Christ does, are the same odds. And I, I've heard it put different ways. But it's as if I went to the moon and hid a penny. And then you went to the moon, and without looking, without searching, you walked right up to it and picked up the penny. You know, what are the odds of you being able to do that? No, that's pretty good. You know, the moon is the same width as the United States. So, uh, the same diameter. So, it's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a big place to hide a penny. All right. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. I was watching a baseball game one time. And a black cat got on the field. It was just after Halloween one year. And there's a cat on the... And they can't continue the game, right? Because you don't want an outfielder to run over a cat, right? And they're trying to corral this cat. But what happens when a, when, a, when a groundskeeper runs up to the cat? The cat ran the other way. And it took like a long time to, to, to finally you know, to catch this cat. Because the more I called, the further they ran away. They sacrificed to the bales and they burnt incest to images... It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. How do you teach a baby, a toddler, to walk? You take them by the arms, right? In fact, when I was doing it with my boys, I put their feet on my shoes and walked with them on my shoes. Then I put them off and then they would kind of move their feet and kind of get it. And then they take three steps and boom, down on their diaper. You know, and then pick them up and three more steps and boom, on the diaper again. You know, and, 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 and there they go. But God said, I'm the one who did that for Ephraim. But they didn't realize that it was I who healed them. So I taught them to walk. And then when they're hurting, I healed them. But they didn't even realize it was me. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. What would cords or ropes of kindness be it was actually kind of common I, we had this with one family in my town of Poinette where there's a mom who has so many kids that one of the kids has to be tied with around the waist with a rope to mom because he's always wandering off and if she's going to get the whole family to the store you know on foot she's got to they got to tie one of the kids um, and you used to, and I know that in, in old movies you see it all the time, and I saw it as a child. I don't know if I see it anymore so much. But you don't have families 
with 8, 10, 12, 14 kids anymore. You know, that's, that's that common any longer. But you used to see this. And I don't know if that's exactly what the, the picture is here, but that's what I'm thinking of. Is I, or I, um, I, I bound them, uh, you know, just with kindness that my, what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy, my burden light. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So we don't have a lot of book left here. He's getting right to it with repentance. Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. So the Most High, the exalted one, El Elyon, but he's not going to exalt them. You know, they're... Uh, we had this word earlier, didn't we? It was an abbreviated form. It is here again, but let's just move on with verse 8 and following. So just a couple more verses here. How can I give you up, Ephraim? This is God chasing after his people again with flowers. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? What are Adma and Zeboim? I will tell you how you can know for sure. You'll get it. Before I finish this sentence, you'll understand. In the Old Testament, God destroyed four cities. Adma, Zeboim, and Sodom, and Gomorrah. Those are the four cities. So these are the two not famous cities of, of, of that uh, destruction. And I take it to mean that they were probably the northern cities of the group because they're mentioned with the northern tribes here of Israel, maybe on the north side of the Dead Sea or something like that. Incidentally, Lot was involved in this, uh, Abraham's nephew, and there was a fifth city. It's called Zoar. And why did Zoar survive, even though God said, I'm going to destroy the five? Lot prayed for it. Lot said, I can't make it all the way to the mountains over there in what was going to be Moab eventually. Um, uh, he said, I, I can only make it this far. Can you please just not destroy that city? And so the angels said, okay, we can do that. But it, it shows us the power of prayer, doesn't it? God, I mean, that was on the list of, of, of the bombing raid of the lava out of heaven. That was going to be, that was on the ticket, but... Lot prayed for it, and God said, okay, um, I will do that for you. Um, so, um, my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. God can't bring himself to destroy these people because he loves them. He's searching them. For I am God, and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Okay, what direction is Egypt from Israel, basically? Pretty much south, right? What direction is Assyria? Pretty much north. What direction is Babylon? East. So, of all of the exiles... Where does he say his children will come trembling back from? 
the West. Who is Hosea talking about? He's talking about you. Here, at this moment in the book, Hosea says, when, when I roar, my children will come tumbling and trembling out of the West. I'm going to have people that you don't even expect. Ephraim, O Manasseh, you're going to captivity. Wait till you see the people who are going to come when I call. So in the, in the Old Testament, the West or the islands refers to the people of the Mediterranean, North Africa, Europe, and beyond. It's kind of like those weird uh, Germans and Norwegians and Frenchies and all those people. Okay, last verse. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. My grandmother, my grandma Smith, had a bird named the prophet. It was a parakeet. And they would let the bird out and he'd fly around the apartment. Grandma and grandpa just in those days had just an apartment above the paint store. Just two rooms, living room and kitchen, and the bedrooms were off to the side in the bathroom, but those two rooms. And the, the prophet would fly around and then grandma would call him back, prophet, prophet, come back, settle down. She'd pet his feathers down, you know, and give little kisses and put him back in his cage. Now you're home, she would say. Beautiful brass cage. But that's what I think of here, like trembling like birds, like doves. Come here, you know, come back, and I'll settle you where you belong, and God will put them back in this place that he's prepared for them. You know, that's God calling his people back and loving them. There's one more verse in this chapter, but it really goes with chapter 12. So we will stop here at verse 11, and we'll pick it up there then next time. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.